0: Thank you, Bonnie and Linda, as always. Alrighty. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 31. Um, this week we will be in Genesis 31. Next week we will not be. We're going to take a break for Easter, um, and then we'll pick back up. And some might wonder, okay, why are you doing that on you know on Palm Sunday? And the reason why is because if you really want to know what Jesus did the majority of his time, he went back to the Old Testament and preached from it. <laughs> um The most Jesus-like thing we can do is proclaim him from the scriptures is what he did. Um, So that's why I do that. I I just, I want to be more like Jesus, essentially. (laughs) And that's the best way to do it is by proclaiming the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. Um, But next week, we will take a a little break and really talk about Easter and um, talk about the resurrection. Anyway, so today, Genesis chapter 31, a little bit about what happened last time. Um basically, Laban had been um, very deceptive in what he was trying to do with Jacob. And if we remember, Jacob was asking, okay, I've worked for you for 14 years, and if you want me to stay with you, you have to give me some wages. You have to give me something um, other than what's been given. Otherwise, I want to go back home. And so Laban said, okay, what do you want? What, What exactly do you want? And so Jacob said, I would like what's striped and spotted and speckled in your flock, and that will be my wages. Laban said, sure, and then he took all of them out <laughs> and said, good luck, uh, basically, with the flocks. Um, and so now we're going to find out, okay, what, well, what happened was is that God was still grace, gra- uh, full of grace for Jacob. He still received his wages, and not only received his wages, but received them in full. Now we're going to find out, okay, Jacob wants to go back home. He's starting to realize some things, and so this is how he's going to get back to Canaan. Um, So starting with verses 1 through 3. Now Jacob heard the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So chapter 31 of Genesis begins with the brief reflection over what has just occurred. As mentioned, Jacob had continued to prosper despite Laban's best attempts to do what he could to keep Jacob from prospering. As such, Laban's sons saw what has occurred and began to speak negatively concerning Jacob because they saw Jacob as pilfering from their father um, and, just as importantly, themselves because they were supposed to receive that kind of inheritance when, when Laban was to pass. Jacob is not one who is oblivious, though. He recognizes that this newfound wealth and gain is not settling well with his father-in-law or his uh, brothers-in-law. The text describes it as uh, Laban regarding him with with not as the same favor as before. As we remember, the last time they spoke, Laban greatly considered Jacob um, as a blessing and an asset because he was being blessed through Jacob. Now that Laban's own wealth is starting to diminish, it is causing him to look at Jacob in a new light. It is at this moment of doubt and intrigue that the Lord speaks to Jacob again. In the text thus far, it has been approximately twenty years since Jacob fled from Esau, and thus twenty years since Bethel. As we recall, the purpose of the visit at Bethel was for Jacob to receive a covenantal blessing from God that would um, be that God would be with him and that he would return to Canaan. Now God is telling him it is time to return to his homeland. God has been with Jacob thus far. And now God guarantees that he will be with him in his journey home. Now, we're going to come to verses 4 through 13. And I've I've kept it all together because it's a speech. Um, And it's a very important speech for what's about to happen. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field. Where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages and all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Oh, wait, no. Spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Throughout this chapter, the focus is on the speeches made from Jacob and Laban. Jacob has the first speech, which is directed to his wives, Rachel and Leah. It is interesting that the field is where the conversation takes place. Uh, But we shouldn't really be too surprised since the field would be the safest place for this kind of a conversation to be, since it would be away from listening ears, Um, and that's why he's meeting with them in the field. Jacob's speech begins by recognizing what has been taking place between himself and Laban. He states to his wives that Laban no longer regards him with the same fervor or favor as before. Regardless of what Laban may think, however, God is on Jacob's side rather than Laban's. Still, Jacob decides to focus on his many years of service to Laban. Indeed, Jacob has been a dutiful servant. Laban has basically said as much previously when he encouraged Jacob to stay the six years prior to this. Jacob isn't lazy, but a hard worker and has labored for 20 years for Laban. Indeed, Laban has truly been blessed because of of Jacob. Yet despite this, Laban has cheated Jacob repeatedly. Jacob may be using hyperbole here in order to make his point when he says that Laban has changed his wages ten times. Regardless, the point is that Laban, the oft-greedy materialist, has tried as many times as possible to have the upper hand in the relationship, trying to gain as much as possible for himself. Despite all of this, in the end, God was with Jacob, and it showed through his continued gain. Still, Laban's faults need to be pointed out further. Here we learn a little bit of the slights made against Jacob via Laban. As scholars note, the previous chapter focused on the whole picture. That is, the spotted and the striped. It was very um, just overall. Here, Jacob is describing the situation firsthand, where Laban attempted to cheat him by offering one, then the other. Regardless, Jacob has ample proof that God was with him, since no matter how often the deal was changed, in the end, Jacob prospered. In the previous chapter, there was little mention of God being the reason for this, but here we see it is quite clear as Jacob credits all of his gains to God. Indeed, despite Laban's attempts at gaining the upper hand, God has been for Jacob by taking everything Laban was laying claim to and giving it to Jacob. Again, we find the real reason for Jacob's wealth is not in his mischief or his superstitions. In the end, it is from God's own blessings. Jacob then gives an account of a vision he had. The question most scholars wonder is whether what he describes is a different vision than what occurred at the beginning of this chapter, or if this is an embellishment on Jacob's part to persuade his wives to leave, or if this is just a fuller expression from Jacob's uh, perspective, whereas in verses 2 and 3 it was the narrator summarizing it. I'm not sure, um, to be honest. It's probably, I would say probably the last one. Ultimately, scholars are divided on the issue. And we find little help in the text itself. As such, what we can be sure of is this, that to uh, have his eyes lifted up implies an important moment. Perhaps when Jacob previously asked for the spotted, speckled, and striped livestock, he had already had the vision at this time for them, and therefore that was why he requested them. Again, we can't be sure about that, though, so it's, it's a bit speculative. Along with this, the angel of God speaks to Jacob. It is interesting that the text described this as the angel of God, rather than the more commonly used angel of the Lord. Uh, One might wonder if Jacob says this because he is in a foreign land, or if there is some other reason which uh, we cannot be certain of or we can't ascertain at this point. Regardless, the angel speaks to Jacob, and immediately Jacob responds with, Here I am. The angel then speaks to Jacob concerning everything Jacob has already told his wives. Indeed, the reason for them leaving or being as they are weren't because of the visions alone, but because God has done it on Jacob's behalf. Indeed, God has seen the oppressive treatment of Laban on Jacob and had given to Jacob and has acted to it accordingly by saving Jacob from Laban, basically. Now the statement is remade for further emphasis. God now reveals himself to be the same God he met at Bethel. He reminds Jacob of the vow which was made between God and himself. Indeed, God had acted in accordance with the vow. He had watched over Jacob throughout his sojourn. Now God demands Jacob return home. Indeed, it is not a request, but a command. Arise, go out from this land, and return And then we'll come to 14 through 16. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Throughout the narrative thus far, whenever the sisters are together... They are against each other. (laughs) Um, Now, however, after Jacob's speech, they are in accord. Indeed, just as Laban has tried to trick Jacob, in the end, that is the equivalent of taking from them as well. Um, Indeed, they even reflect on how they have felt by being sold by their father. This may very well be a reflection of the tension between them and their father after the fact. They are not likely oblivious to their father's scheming, and as such recognize that he is in the end treating them no better than he would a foreigner, uh, who, as we know, he is more than willing to take advantage of for his own profit. Thus, they recognize Jacob is speaking the truth. The wealth of their father now really belongs to Jacob, and therefore them and their children. As such, they find no real good argument to not leave with Jacob. Indeed, they affirm his calling and encourage him to do as has been commanded by God. Now we'll come to the uh, few verses. We'll finish up with this section. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Pedam Aram, to go to land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the airman, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So verse 17 is an important point for us. Far too often we can imagine a scenario that it was a quick move. But the truth is, Jacob had accumulated a fair amount of wealth in the form of livestock and slaves. Thus, these few verses remind us that it was not like a quick escape, uh, but would be actually a pretty slow process. Despite this, Jacob chose the right time to make his move. Laban was shearing the sheep, which was a pretty, uh, pretty busy time for sheep herders. As such, it would provide the perfect opportunity for Jacob and his family to escape while Laban was being distracted. But along with this, we learn that Rachel stole Laban's household gods. The term for household gods here is teraphim, and most are unsure of their purpose. Some believe that they were idols of gods. Um, Others believe that they were images of family members, thus showing an amount of family piety at the time. Um, Regardless, they deal with divination in some way within the Old Testament, and as such, they can be still described as pagan. No matter what, these things are pagan items. Still, this does not give us a reason for her taking the gods. And whatever her purpose is, they're kind of lost on us today. Is it possible that if it's the family aspect, that if she takes them, then that lays claim to all the inheritance? Or is it just the fact that she's still a pagan? <laughs> um, we're not sure as to why she did this. Still, we learn that the escape works Jacob has managed to trick or deceive Laban, doing so by not telling him of his leaving. Thus, Jacob outwits Laban in, the mo- in this moment and manages to leave unscathed. Indeed, he makes it across the Euphrates and into Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan between the Dead Sea um, and the Sea of Galilee. Thus, So if, let's say if I were to draw a little picture, here's the Galilee, down here's the Dead Sea, and then over here would be Gilead, um, and over here would be Canaan. To me, to you, it might be the opposite. (laughs) Anyway, thus Jacob is within sight of his homeland, Um, just just out of reach almost. It's pretty interesting. So we're going to end actually there for today because actually this whole chapter flows really well together. Next week, we'll learn what happens with Laban. The main point of these verses, though, describe Jacob's flight from Laban. In it, we find an important speech by Jacob to his wives, reminding them of all that Laban has put them through, and how, more importantly, God has provided, despite Laban's intentions. Ultimately, Jacob succeeds in convincing his wives to go, and they manage to escape while Laban is unaware. All right, so I had two two applications from this. In today's text, we experience something rather fascinating about Jacob. Indeed, despite his many faults, today he is very reminiscent of his grandfather, Abraham. How so? Just like Abraham, Jacob is called to go. Indeed, it is not a request by God, but a command. The necessity of obedience is front and center for Jacob, just as it had been for Abraham and even Noah before him. The question is, will this rascal of a man... Be obedient, or will he do as he pleases? As we see from the text, Jacob is obedient in the command to go. He does not hesitate when God reveals to him that this is the proper course. He goes to his wives with all the information and persuades them that this is the correct course. And after having this conversation, they all follow God's will, which is to return to Canaan. Just as it was with Abraham, so it is now, that this can be an important reflection of Upon our own lives. When we come to the faith, it is by God's design that we should be obedient followers of His will. While faith in Christ is what saves us, we are still called to be obedient with all of our lives. There is nothing in our life which falls outside of God's sovereignty, and as such, we recognize this in our obedience to Him. But there is a further application than even here. For what we find in Jacob's obedience is also reminiscent of how once we are called to be followers of Christ, we become citizens of a new world. Jacob was in Padan Aram for 20 years. And now he is to leave the foreign land and return home. This is no different than what occurs with us. Consider what Peter says. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoer, evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that actually is a reflection of Jesus, who says that, almost the same thing. Well, now we notice what we read from Peter. Peter. It's a sense... That we do not belong here. We are a nation unto God. We are a people of his own possession. We are not our own. And we are not owned by this world and the rulers of this world or the tempters of this world. But we belong to the promised land, to God. Our promised land is not the land of Canaan. But is the inheritance which we find in Christ. An eternal kingdom filled with the glory of God. Thus, in our salvation, we find the same concept of leaving one to go to another. For Jacob, it was leaving the foreign land of his father-in-law. For us, it is leaving the futility of the world for the grace and love found in the fullness of Christ. Just like Jacob... We are called to obediently follow our Savior to this new land, reflecting His glory to the world around us. But as we can see from Peter, it doesn't necessarily mean something easy. We aren't to live however we want to, in whatever manner pleases us. No, we are to reflect Jesus. We are to proclaim His excellencies, and we are to shine His light we are to battle in the fight against the flesh, our own sinful desires. When the world sees us, they see people of honorable conduct walking circumspectly in the world around us, as we even have in our in our covenant. In this way, when we live our lives to root out sin, to battle against darkness in and around us, to seek justice and mercy, to promote grace and love, it is not a grace and love or justice and mercy defined by the world, but defined by our Father in heaven and represented in the person of Jesus Christ. Nor is it just an ad-lib of who Jesus is, a partial thought, a quote of something he once said, but a complete understanding of the person of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. This requires us to know what sin is, what God detests... It requires us to recognize it in our lives and recognize it in the world around us. We can't simply say battle darkness and not realize that darkness is and what it is. It's corruption. It's evil. It's immorality of all kinds. It's found in the people who abuse others. It's systems which are fraudulent. It's companies that are manipulative. It's governments which are crooked. It is our responsibility to shine the light of Christ in all of these broken places outside of us, while at the same time allowing his light to penetrate deep within our own hearts, to scatter the darkness within us as well. We can be easily manipulated and deceived by our own selves most of all, We allow this deception to take place when we allow our affections to be placed on our own wisdom, our own counsel, our own goals, our own set paths, rather than on the wisdom, the counsel, the goal, the set path of God Almighty. In allowing these affections to be seized by our lesser love, we allow it to take control toward the world. All the while our God is saying, go, go to the promised land come home to me. In Jacob's story today, we are reminded of this fact, that just as God called Jacob home, so he does so with us. Like Jacob, we are expected to be obedient followers until the end. Will we stumble? Surely we will. Will we succeed perfectly? That's unlikely. But what obedience doesn't perfect, faith does for us. So as we journey on to our home, remember to be faithfully obedient to all God has called of you, seeking not to glory in yourself, but to glory in the excellencies of our God. Alrighty, so we do have a second one, a second point, grace and providence. And again, there's one other note to mention before we close today's sermon. One other point of interest to make. Something we must not forget to notice is just how gracious God is to Jacob. Indeed, God has shown a great grace to Jacob by providing for him despite his many failures. As it is, we have been granted a great amount of grace as well. While it is true, we may today look at the life of Jacob thus far and think to ourselves, "Eh, I don't know if I would have chosen Jacob. In reality, we must find ourselves to be no less doers of evil as Jacob has been from the beginning. Indeed, we have each been wicked in our own right. But that is the beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus, is that it is gracious to sinners. Jacob is one such individual. He was by no means perfect, and yet God still provided for him exactly what he needed. Indeed, God had even provided more than he needed by interceding on Jacob's behalf, and even to call him specifically home. The truth is... Again it is much the same for us. God intercedes on our own behalf despite our sin. Like Jacob, he gives gracious to us the fruit of salvation which is comes through his son Jesus Christ. Yet it is not only grace which is given, but he also provides us all that we need in order to attain this great salvation. This is providence at its deepest. For while we would all like to cling to the things we want, the truth is God has given us all that we need and more through his son, Jesus Christ. He has made a way for us to become heirs of his kingdom and has done this without any of our support. He has provided the salvation, giving us all that we need already through his son. Thus, the providence we see in the life of Jacob is but an example of the providence that God bestows upon us each day. Every day after we have come to the cross of Christ, in submission to him, every day we seek to glorify our Father in heaven, every day we seek to walk in step with the Spirit. Each new day presents us with the depth of grace and the depth of providence given to us by God's own hand. Thus, when the world tells you, you need X, you need Y, you need Z to survive, you can turn to the world and say, no, I need Christ. For in him, God has given us this great salvation. For by his blood, we are redeemed and by his wounds, we are healed. For what are the things of today when compared to an eternity with our Lord? They are but dross waiting to be burned away. When God takes Jacob then and shows him grace and provides for him, we can remember that God does the same for us in what we need in order to continue on our own journey to the promised land. That is, just as God had promised to be with Jacob on the journey, he has promised to be with us as well. So when we talk, as we just did about our obedience, for example, we need to remember that our obedience is not an obedience completely blind and irrespective of the truth that God is with us. Indeed, we have the saints of old to remind us, and likely our own lives, to give evidence to this truth that our God is with us now and forever. You and I are not alone. Far from it. We are not weary wanderers who are expected to cross the great chasms and climb the great heights of obedience by our own might. No, we are more than conquerors because of the love given to us by God through his son Jesus. This love is with us now and it will be with us tomorrow. It is with us when we wake and when we sleep. It is with us in our times of trouble and sorrow and in our times of happiness and joy. He is here with us by his grace. And as such, we can know that should we stumble along the way, he is with us to bring us back. Continue to hold on to the hope that is within you through the gospel. As it reminds you that God has provided the gospel itself, which brings those out of death and into life. We're on our way to better days. We're not quite there yet. Keep up the faith, though, knowing that our God is ever guiding us onward into his marvelous light, reminding ourselves and each other that by God's grace and providence, we are making our way home to the promised land, and that as we make our way, we are never alone. And so, naturally, that leads to the gospel. Um, In regards to our origins, you know, Where do we all come from? We come from God. We come from this great Creator. We come from this 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 Master. This this God who we can look at and we can say, "My my my God, my God." And not even that, you know. And it goes so much further than that because through Jesus, we don't even look at this this theism, this God who is up there, but we can say, "Our Father who is in heaven." And as it is, humanity, we're in the image of God, and this is a beautiful, wonderful doctrine. It's a doctrine we have to proclaim over and over and over again because the world keeps pushing us back against it. The world keeps on telling you that you're just a machine, and the world keeps telling you that you're just atomistic, you're just a bunch of molecules, you're nothing. Dust in the wind. Famous song. All we are is dust in the wind. We're not just dust in the wind. We're made in the image of God. We each have dignity, worth, and sanctity to life. And it's implanted on each and every one of you as individuals. And it's a beautiful and marvelous thing. And something that we've seen throughout Genesis, though, is how beautiful and marvelous things can become corrupted. And even here, we talk about Laban, for example, and how he was such a tricky man, and how he was willing to deceive Jacob constantly in order to get the upper hand. That's that's just a reflection of the fall. That's all it is. It's a reflection of people who abuse. It's a reflection of people who are living in sin and, and, and relishing in their sin. And as such, we're all like that. We've all got this darkness within us that says, follow me blindly into it. And because of that, we sin. And because of that, we stumble. And because of that, we fall. And we fall and we fall. And because of that, we deserve judgment. And that's the true problem, you see. It's not just the fact that we all commit evil atrocities against God. I mean, if God didn't exist, then it wouldn't matter. The problem is God does exist and he should judge us because of that. That if God is truly a just God, then he should condemn sinners. He has to. The question is, what can we do about it then? And I always like this analogy of, let's say, like the murderer who's in court, you know? And like, what can the murderer do in court? Can he just sit there and say, well, I'm guilty, but let me go? Can he do that? Would that work? Maybe in some corrupt places. (laughs) But in a truly just society, in a truly just judge, they wouldn't let that happen. That's our problem. We're the murderers. We've killed the Son of God. Can we just say, let me go? (laughs) The problem is we can't. But there is redemption. And the redemption comes through Jesus Christ. And that's this whole story kind of reminds me of this about how Jacob, this sinner, has been given so much by God's providence. And so have you. So that when you, the guilty party, come forward and you say, Yes, I am guilty, have mercy on me, be gracious on me, please, Lord. He is. And Jesus Christ takes all of your sin and abolishes it. So you never experience sin again. And you don't ever experience the pangs of death and the judgment that you deserve because of it. That the redemption found in Jesus Christ is God's redemption, not ours. And that redemption is given to us by faith. Jacob, what did he do to gain all that grace? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. He didn't deserve it, neither do we. And that's what makes it so wonderful. That's what makes Palm Sunday and Easter so wonderful. Is that we're completely undeserving of this great king who sacrifices for us. That's what Easter's about. The fact that God has taken away the judgment on each of us. That's why he came and he died and he rose again. And that God is glorified in it. Praise the Lord. Because if God was not glorified in this, it wouldn't have happened. If God was more glorified through killing all of us and sentencing us to judgment forever, guess what? He would have done it. But this redemption glorifies God more. That's how we know it's true. (laughs) And that's how we know it's real. Because it happened. So as we go forward, you know, what's left for us? Well, if we reject Christ, then we go to eternal judgment. But if we, if we faithfully accept what Christ has done and we obediently follow after him all of our lives, and if we stumble, it's fine, Christ is with us, then where we're heading is to the promised land. We're heading to a new land where all the pangs of sin and death are no longer with us. And we can experience our God without any shade there. Do any of you get that feeling sometimes out of curiosity? where like you're walking and you're living and you have God and you know you, you have God, but there are just days when you just feel a haze between your relationship with God, and it feels like, oh man, there's something between me and God. Do you ever have that feeling? I'm on, I'll be honest, I do. Imagine when you never have that again, when you turn and he's always there. And it's not only a matter of turning and him being there. It's a matter of you turning and he is 100% there. No doubt, no worries, nothing. That's where we're heading and it's going to be great. I'm excited for that. Because I know that the best days of my life aren't the ones when I feel the best about the world around me and when I feel like all my bills are paid. No, the best days of my life are when I know God is with me. And to have that for an eternity... I'm excited and we should all be excited about it because that's where we're heading and it's all because of what Christ has done. So let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because you are a God who is with us, who is for us and who has redeemed us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we continue to have our faith in, in your son, we ask that you would continue to provide that you would continue to show us that you are with us and that, you know, we wouldn't be like Peter because Peter was told repeatedly, Lord, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Peter was told repeatedly, I am the resurrection. And yet Peter still missed it. And it makes us think, Lord, are we the same? Are we the same that maybe the issue isn't that you're not there with us, but we don't have the eyes to see that you're right there? And so, Lord, as we continue forward, we ask that you would open up our eyes and you would continue to reveal your Son to us in all the ways in which he is there. And we ask ultimately that you will be glorified in us. And that we would find our joy in you alone. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.